from Hollywood, it's rated LGBT Radio, starring your host, Rob Watson! Welcome, welcome, welcome to this installment of Rated LGBT Radio. I am your host, Rob Watson. And today we have a really fascinating show lined up for you. This is regarding a brand new film. It is available on Amazon Prime, and the name of the film is called Guadalajara. And um, it is a it's actually a fairly intense um, little film um, and full of heart and passion. Um, it was many years in the making. Uh, the film was inspired by true life events of a trans teen growing up in East L.A. The uh, story is of Guadalajara Bustamante and her relationship with her mother as um, uh, Guadalajara befriends the neighborhood queen bees, and they are tough cookies, let me, let me tell you. Um, and uh, she begins going down a really destructive path. Um, so it's a, a film about her her dramas and um, you know uh, kind of a fascinating um, cinematic event. Um, again, this will be available on Amazon Prime, or it actually is available now. Um, today, uh, waiting on the decks, waiting to talk to us is the producer and writer of the film and its star, um, Alexander Justin Gonzalez. Um, Alexander Justin stars as Guadalajara in the film, and um, so we're anxious to hear all about that and um, how, how this was all created. Um, Alexander uh, Justin is a Tejano-American filmmaker, a uh, member of the LGBT community, and the films and works that they've done have uh, been as an opportunity to represent but all the communities in terms of an intersectional representation. Um, so anxious to hear more about that um, coming up very shortly. Before we get to Alexander, uh, Justin, we have Brody Levesque, who is the co-host of the show and the editor of the Los Angeles Blade magazine. You can find the Los Angeles Blade at losangelesblade.com. You should check that out every single day. It is one of the fastest up-and-coming LGBTQ newspapers in the nation and certainly a sizable presence in the Los Angeles area. Um, with that, welcome to the show, Brody. Hi, Rob, and I'm looking forward to hearing our uh, young filmmaker tell us how they put it together and a lot more about that. Um, uh, in line with uh, the film being in East Los Angeles. Let me shoot to Los Angeles for just a moment. The investigation into the death of a 27-year-old transgender woman who was a staffer of the Los Angeles LGBT Center, De Rodas, um, a Latina and a San Fernando Valley native and UCLA uh, graduate, uh, has turned out to be problematic at the very least. The Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department uh, continues to misgender 
Miss Rodas. Uh, Miss Rodas, uh, her body was discovered uh, in unincorporated uh, Los Angeles County near Malibu uh, a couple of weeks ago. And the problem is that uh, the sheriff's investigators, even after being told by the family, being told by the LGBT Center of Los Angeles, and actually being informed by the media, including myself and my staff, uh, that they were misgendering, um, Ms. Rodas continued to do it. So we have that that we're combating. In well, line okay, Brody, Brody yeah. what, what the hell are they doing? Why are they doing that? Absurd I, and awful. I haven't gotten this. I, it's awful. And I haven't gotten a sufficient explanation uh, from the sheriff's department. Um, I have communicated uh, several times uh, with them. I had a uh, conversation with California Highway Patrol spokesperson, Lieutenant Patricia Thomas. Uh, the California Highway Patrol was the initial agency in the investigation um, because of the fact that that particular uh, Mohan, section of Mohan uh, Highway is actually overseen by the CHP in that area. Um, and Lieutenant Thomas was very forthwith about, you know, they got it right. They don't even understand why the Sheriff's Department is continuing to do this. It doesn't make any uh, sense. I've had conversations uh, with the Los Angeles County Medical Examiner Coroner's Office, uh, who has not misgendered uh, Ms. Lotus in their uh, autopsy and other uh, notations. So this just continues to be uh, very problematic with the Sheriff's Department. Now, we have a new sheriff. Uh, Rob Luna, uh, Robert Luna is now our new sheriff. I reached out to his office to find out why exactly it is that the Lost Hills uh, station of his department and the spokespeople for the LASD are continuing to do this. As of today, I still have not heard back from Sheriff Luna or any of his representatives. I will keep you advised as I keep on that. Yeah. Um, and and how well, do they know anything yeah. about the case? I mean, what how, the, how she was yeah, killed? Yeah, the coroner's office. Home? Well, the coroner's office uh, is seeing this as a narcotics overdose and a dump. Um, right now, the fentanyl crisis in Los Angeles County and the surrounding Southern California areas are completely off the charts. Uh, the fentanyl crisis has become. Uh, a significant contributing factor, particularly in the underserved uh, communities. Um, we've had, I believe, eight deaths of young Latinas uh, in the Los Angeles Unified School District. These are high school students, okay, as a direct result of fentanyl overdoses. We've had a couple of cases of homeless individuals uh, that have passed away, uh, also fentanyl overdoses. Uh, so we have a, we have a problem. Uh, with the opiate crisis in Los Angeles that's not being adequately addressed. And it, it's one of the situations where, you know, officials need to kind of pay attention and they need to be a lot more proactive. So we're trying to kind of, you know, draw attention into this and, and also get people, you know, to understand you know, the depth of the problem of the fentanyl crisis in Los Angeles, Los Angeles County, San Bernardino, Riverside, Orange County, um, even San Diego County. This, and it's just something that's become very, 
very, very, very pervasive throughout the entire Southern California region. So, um, and even though the Los Angeles County Coroner's Office wasn't willing to just yet, uh, because they're still waiting on toxicology results, obviously, uh, from the autopsy, they're not willing to, you know, put a pin in fentanyl as being uh, the responsible, uh, you know, drug here for the death overdose. Right. Uh, they're very much keeping it, you know, in the back of their minds. Um, and, and we'll stay in Los Angeles County for just a minute. Uh, we got the Los Angeles County Commission on Human Relations uh, released uh, their annual report. The number of reported hate crimes uh, in Los Angeles County is now the highest in 19 years. Uh, the report uh, is showing a growth um, of 23% over last year. We are seeing, and this is data that's being submitted by over 100 law enforcement agencies, educational institutions, community organizations around Los Angeles County. Mind you, Rob, this is just L.A. County. Um, right. But as, as we look at the escalation, um, a friend of the shows and someone who's been a guest, a state senator who represents San Francisco, Scott Weiner, uh, received death threats and bomb threats again uh, on Tuesday, which caused the evacuation of his home, both of his offices, um, and he now has uh, San Francisco police uh, investigated plainclothes, bodyguards, and the CHP in Sacramento. Uh, you know, again, all hate-driven and animus-driven. Um, you right. saw what happened why, why uh, is... we talked last week. Now, why is Scott in particular being targeted like this? I mean, it's, you know, it's, given it's California and given there are plenty of potential LGBTQ um, out politicians and spokespeople, et cetera, why, why is Scott getting the, the brunt of this? Uh, Scott's been the author of some bills that have been signed into law by Governor Gavin Newsom that the far-right and far-right extremists uh, have labeled as little more than grooming and bills to enable pedophilia. One of the bills was to give sanctuary to transgender youth and their families in the state of California. Uh, another bill was to essentially clean up uh, the definitions for the sex offender registry uh, because some people, quite frankly, don't need to be on it. And that also got the far right really bent out of shape. And then Scott is a very prolific lawmaker, and uh, almost all of his bills are aimed at helping the LGBTQ community, which, of course, the far right takes exception with. In this particular instance, a week ago, uh, right-wing pundit activist, the head of Turning Point USA, Charlie Kirk, um, targeted Scott on Twitter. And uh, we think Based on that, even the law enforcement is saying that more or less off, you know, off the chart, uh, that we're looking at that as a probability for it. Uh, and just two weeks before that, Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene of Georgia also attacked Scott. And in both cases, the language used by both Representative Greene and Charlie Kirk include the words groomer and pedophile. We know right. that the... We know from what we've seen with the libs of TikTok account, which is a purveyor of hate that's been targeting, especially trans youth and young gay uh, kids, 
um, you know, they, they, she more or less, the woman that runs, lives a TikTok will put something out there. And then literally it's like the old Wizard of Oz flying monkeys, the Proud Boys and these other extremists show up and they start protesting. I mean, drag shows have been their most recent uh, target. So it, it's just kind of a cumulative total. We've also found a disproportionate amount of our black youth being targeted and, of course, our Latino uh, and Latina uh, queer youth being targeted. So it's right. It's it's just one of those situations, Rob. So that's kind of where we're at with that. Um, you know, and, and other things that, you know, also matter is that, you know, people have to look at this for what it really is. I mean, it, it, everything is in a state of elevated, you know, stress right now and hate and things like that. Last night, or actually really early this morning, uh, West Hollywood sheriff's deputies had to evacuate a gay club in West Hollywood. A man with a gun showed up, freaked everybody out. Deputies cleared the place, didn't find the guy. They're searching for him now. Um, last weekend, we had two power stations or substations taken out uh, in North Carolina in a small town, knocked out power to about 48,000 people. And one of the people that said, well, I know what happened, happens to be a huge anti-LGBTQ extremist right. activist simultaneous with the power outage and the FBI sources are telling me they're looking at this pretty hard. There was a drag show. So, you know, it's, it's becoming, do we draw a line from power gets knocked out by intentional vandalism and sabotage to turn lights off so that the drag show goes away? You know, it, it's this is just kind of where we're at with this. And so, um, these are some of the questions that are being raised and it, it really does become uh, quite frankly, rather unfortunate uh, when you start looking at it. Um, and this is really becoming extremely problematic. Uh, we're seeing it all over the place. So I have a question for you, Brody, as a journalist, sure. at what point will the media start referring to these people as domestic terrorists? This is something that uh, myself and others have been pushing in editorial sessions very, very, very hard for, um, because what happens here is domestic terrorism. And, and what the, the fostering uh, and focus of these people, um, it cannot be classified any other way, and especially when you look at the people that you know, are directly involved in it and, and they're proud boys or they're white supremacists or they're other forms of far right extremists. And, and so, yeah, it, it does become the question of, you know, when do my colleagues in, in the media get off the dime and, and put a pin right in the, or as some people used to say, pin the tail on the jackass. I mean, it really, this is what right. it boils down to. I, I had a conversation Earlier today, I was the head of the Trans-Latina Coalition in Los Angeles, uh, my dear friend Bambi Salida. Bambi, of course, she's amazing. Uh, she's one of probably the best-spoken trans activists out there who's got a real handle. And, of course, you know, because she's Latina herself and, and has been dealing with her, her community, you know, one of the things that, you know, she worries about and – and we talk about, which is ironic when you consider the subject of the film centers in on one of the areas that Bambi's worried about, and that's East L.A. 
And, and it's all revolving around toxicity. There's so much of it, you know, and, and instead of just being rhetorical and instead of it just being on Twitter, now we're seeing these acts of violence. And this is what's got Bambi and everyone else concerned. And going back to your question, I think this is exactly something that my fellow editors and I really need to just stop and, and, and grab the bull by the horns and say, this is domestic terrorism. I've already got Justice Department sources telling me it is. So right. maybe well, it's time we start. And, and, and it, yeah, and it, it also puts responsibility on the Margie Taylor Greens and, you know, uh, others that, you know, they're, they are sounding the dog whistle on all this stuff. And, you know, it's like the, the domestic terrorist groups are taking their lead from those people in power and, and through their social media messages. It's, mm-hmm. it, they, they have to, at some point, sit back and whether they intended it or not, you know, which is what their justification is going to be, they have to take responsibility for that is exactly what is happening off of that. And, you know, that's, that is starting to push their free speech into an area that is tantamount to yelling fire in a crowded movie theater. So anyway, a complicated issue. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Any other news stories we we need to touch on Um, really quick or? I think we, we pretty much covered it. Um, I just, a quick footnote, uh, the young man that shot the uh, professional dog walker in Hollywood last year, who was taking care of Gaga's two French bulls was given 21 years in prison. Um, on a happier note, the lawmaker who wrote the Don't Say Gay Law in Florida was indicted by a federal grand jury on multiple felony counts of wire <laughs> fraud and other things. So he's going to be going away for a while once he's convicted. Um, you know, and then, of course, the big news of the day, uh, WNBA uh, superstar Brittany Griner uh, was freed uh, by the Russian government earlier today. And as you and I are going on the air right now, uh, her government jet should be landed, uh, should be landing in, uh, at a U.S. air base shortly. Yeah. So, so another another Brittany has been freed. Yay! That's excellent. And Brody, I know that went over your head, but that, that was a reference to Britney Spears and her uh, ah, her okay. FYI. Um, but also, uh, the marriage bill um, passed the House and yes. um, is now headed to Joe Biden to sign. Um, as well, which is is significant protection. Um, I did want to make a comment on that because uh, a friend of mine uh, had uh, a comment on Facebook today about that, um, and she was right about the bill. The bill is not 100 percent, you know, marriage equality in the United States, bar none. It um, is a repeal of the um, DOMA. Um, act that went through under Clinton um, that said that states did not have to recognize or the federal government did not have to recognize marriage when performed in any given state. And that has rolled that back, um, which means that no matter what happens with the Supreme Court ruling, should they go crazy and roll that back at some point, um, the law of the land is that if you get married in any state, it will be legal in all states. And uh, my friend was saying that this was a hollow bill because that was the limit of its protection. My take on it is that, that it's an 80% bill because that is a lot. Um, if, 
if marriage equality is threatened, um, to be able to marry in the neighborhood state and then come back to your own state and be legally married. That is far head and above what we were um, working through in the 90s um, and the early 20s or 2000s um, to get marriage equality seen and, and passed. I also, yeah. in my opinion, even though nobody asked, but my opinion is that with this, the forces that will try to force some marriage case up through the courts to SCOTUS to try to get marriage equality um, overturned, uh, first of all, it, it sort of takes the wind out of their sails because if they were able to do that, it would have less an effect than getting rid of gay marriage. Gay marriage would still exist very comfortably um, despite that. Plus the fact that only two of the conservative justices actually signaled that they wanted this to happen. It was not all of the conservative justices. So, Brody, I don't know if you had any other comments on that, but um, I just thought that was No, I mean, we're, you're, you've, hit, you've hit the mark. I, the only other thing that I would point out right now to our listeners is that the Supreme Court ruling, Ogreville v. Hodges, is still the law of the land, and until it gets overturned, Basically, the bill that's passed that Biden will sign is simply supplemental. If uh, exactly. anything, it adds protection. That's all it does. Yeah, excellent. Okay, so let's move on to the film Guadalajara and our um, young filmmaker, uh, Alexander Justin Gonzalez. Um, Alexander Justin, welcome to the show. Hi, how are you? Great. Thank How you are you doing me. today? Yeah, our doing pleasure. Great. Uh, so you you are you are a busy man with um, a career that is just going gangbusters. Um, this film, which I believe is not even your latest, I think you have an even later uh, a newer project that we'll we'll get to uh, shortly. But uh, this film is now available on Amazon Prime. Um, but I want to roll it back to you started out from Austin, Texas. What was it like growing up in Texas? Yes, yeah, so I'm originally from Houston, and I film, and then I moved to Austin, and I worked with a few filmmakers there and was in a lot of independent films. And this film, Model Har, specifically started as a documentary. Um, I worked with a few filmmakers who um, found this um, these two, these two women and their uh, mother daughter, and we wanted to tell their journey. And they, um, they were with the cartel and had a lot of, uh, you know, violence growing up. And so it was a documentary originally about them, but then um, it didn't end up going through. So then I ended up asking them if I could make it a feature narrative, and that's what came to pass. Well, now did the plot of the narrative, and I don't want to give too much away, especially towards the end of the film, but did the plot of the narrative follow their lives, or was that kind of an extrapolation of what their experience already was? Fired by true events. So a lot of it is based on true events, but it's her coming of age in East L.A. and in Texas. So the majority of the film takes place in East L.A., and it is about a mother-daughter relationship and um, really her coming out and her, um, you know, telling her mother that she is, you know, a woman, and, you know, all of that. Basically, in the film, her mother is a sex worker, and 
she is, you know, they're super impoverished and they grew up in Boyle Heights and it's, you know, this back and forth of violence and trying to find identity and find friends and kind of her journey finding all of that. Yeah. What, when you um, came across their story, what moved you to the level that you wanted to go tell that, that it became a mission for you? Well, I think being a gay Latino, first of all, was very, you know, I felt really close to the story and I felt like being, you know, kind of from an, you know, having an inside perspective of that and seeing that the story, I, I really empathized and understood some, some levels of that being clear. And I was like, you know, this mm-hmm. is something that I, that should be told. And then when the documentary didn't come out um, and it didn't go through, I decided, I was like, God, this needs to be made into a narrative. There's just something about it that I was like, her coming of age and the stories were just too good not to tell. So I was like, I would love to, to tell it like this. And I was really lucky that they were like, we would love for you to tell it. And we would love for you to be, to be, you know, to be this part. So I got her blessing and felt very like, you know, let's go into rehearsals. Let's try to cast. Let's see what story we want to tell. And me and the director, Willie Napier, we wrote this and, we're like, God, what do we tell from this documentary that's, you know, the most pivotal? And then we started telling, you know, her story of her love affair. So she had this, this love and this friends and her first introduction at how she got involved with the cartel and how it all really began and basically how she ends up in this really, in a lot of turmoil with her mother, which is right. how everything kind of happened uh, in her life. How much did you, as you were forming the character and playing the character on film, how much did you check in with her and, and um, you know, for coaching or, or insights um, did you oh, do or did you take that off independently? Yeah, no, throughout the entirety. She was very involved, and I wanted to tell her story really clearly. Um, and there are moments where it's, it's kind of heightened and there's, and she's very kind of loud. She was like, I'm not going to be this passive person who's super shy when I'm right. having to defend my life on the day-to-day, right? Because this is like, you know, the 90s, and it, it was a different time in East L.A. in the 90s, right? And so it, it's this, you know, being trans in the 90s is a totally different thing than it is now, right? I feel like today it's a lot more accepted, and, you know, you're not seen as this, you know, outsider the way that you are I mean you still are but not in the same way I mean after hearing the interview that Brody just spoke about it it's just so sad I'm like wow this is you know it just feels like we're moving backwards it's you know it's a pendulum and yet we are although there hopefully we are making more um, trans safe spaces and um, certainly the advocacy for trans folks um, you know is is growing but it's, you know, it's definitely not universal, and the anti-trans is, is far more poignant and violent and hideous uh, than they were before. I mean, we've had, we've had trans performance, you know, since, you know, the, the 60s, which I know is way older than you aren't going to remember that part, but um, you know, that Flip Wilson and uh, Milton Berle and all sorts of, of male performers doing drag, you know, and everybody just took it as incredibly, you know, funny and, and embraced it. And now it's, quote, unquote, grooming. It's, um, 
you know, so yeah, it, it, there is a dark element that has, has emerged that is is uh, difficult. Um, I know one of your big influences um, as a filmmaker is John Waters. Um, tell me about that and how John Waters has has inspired you. Yeah, John Waters is one of my favorite directors of all time. Um, I love his really camp aesthetic, right? As, as many of us were influenced by the Rocky Horror Picture Show growing up and, you know, raise your hand if you're a virgin sort of thing. And um, and then you end up diving into Divine and all of his other amazing films. And when this story came about, we were like, we really want it to be stylized. And I was telling that about, you know, the person this was inspired by, this family. And I was like, is that okay if we stylize it this sort of, you know, this way? Because, you know, this is your coming of age. You are kind of you know, defending yourself in so many situations and your identity. Can we, like, put that in the film? And um, we're really lucky she's, you know, we got her blessing from it. And so we decided to film it in that vein. We have a lot of, um, we have a, a lot of different, I guess, I wouldn't say too campy, but we have a lot of exaggerated things that we do. There's, you know, there's moments where she sings and she breaks out into, um, you know, I guess people would say an extra She's kind of extra in the way that she, um, you know, is perceived and how she talks to people. And, and I think a lot of it is when you're trying to, you know, defend who you are to people and you're not this outsider and you're trying to have, you know, friends and you're trying to, you know, be accepted, that um, is kind of how it was portrayed. So that was what we kind of used. And my mentor is actually Matthew Bright from um, the director of Freeway and Freeway 2, and so he helped me as well in the making of this project um, and throughout in my next film. So um, it, the thriller aspect um, we kind of wanted to, to put into this film, kind of make it show us, you know, this, the violence mm-hmm. that kind of, you know, goes on. Yeah, there were, there were quite a few moments in this film that were, you know, uh, you know, Poignant, shocking, um, you know, incredibly moving. Um, I have to say, it's like I did get a lot of kind of John Walters style or John Waters style in the film, and even even the um, makeup of um, Guadalajara um, at times reminded me very much of um, Divine, and I'm assuming that a lot of that was intentional. It was, yeah, yeah. So. Growing up, um, the person this was inspired by, she would dress in, like, really extravagant makeup and would really, you know, drag was a part of her identity later in life. So we wanted to kind of capitalize on that and kind of show that she really did put this, you know, effort into the way she looked and dressed and being effeminate and having, you know, over-the-top makeup was a definite part of that. Having the, like, standard Shola eyebrow that's really high up and, um, you know, being really close to, I guess she was influenced by her mother. So most of her clothes were stolen from her mom as a sex worker. So she was, you know, constantly in really tight clothes and really provocative things. Um, so, yeah, I, I think that was an intention by our director, Willie Napier. He did want a, um, he did want us to kind of have the makeup similar to that. And it, it was, it mirrored what, who this person really was in real life. So those two happened to go hand in hand. Right. I, I know a lot of the emotion that that was expressed in the film. You've you've remarked before that it came from 
your own experience with depression and anxiety, um, heartbreak, loss, what 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 um, what did you pull from from yourself um, as you put forth this book? Yeah. Um, so I grew up in the United Pentecostal Church, and I grew up not knowing anything of the secular world until I was about 18 years old. And so for me, I was always an outsider. I never under I was never allowed to watch Harry Potter or really anything secular. Cut my hair. I always had to have super military short hair. Um, growing up. So I think, you know, being, you know, coming out to my parents, which was, you know, of course, never accepted. I was pretty much kicked out and had an entire, you know, falling out and we had to rekindle it. And it was me trying to rebuild, you know, relationships with my parents and my family and trying to, you know, really dive into that. So I guess I used a little bit of that and knowing what it is to be, I guess, an outsider into it. Um, so, yeah, I think I used a little bit of that in how I was raised. Oh, my God. I, I just want to hug you. I mean, that's a lot. And, I'm, I, I mean, that is a hard, hard road to have lived. I'm, I'm almost wondering when somebody's going to make the movie about your story. Um, uh-huh. you've, you've, certainly, you've certainly transformed just in terms of going from that to – you know, up and coming talented filmmaker and, and with vision and, you know, taking on, you know, the cinematic world is really inspiring, honestly. So um, thank you. Sincere kudos to um, you for, for that. Yeah. My next film is actually about the United Pentecostal church. And so, um, and it is loosely around my story and actually one of my close friends story who I grew up with. Um, it's about two siblings who are both, queer who escape a Pentecostal cult in the woods. Um, and so that it's a sector that is based on um, a real real life event of the UPT. So that is my next feature that will be coming out probably next month. Um, so that's something to look and forward to, I guess. I, um, that That's called Children of the Cloth, correct? Yes, it is. It's starring yeah. Ellie Darcy Alden from Harry Potter and a few other actors um, you might know. So excited to, to see where it goes. I, I'm, I am super excited about that one. Uh, what is the plan for Children of the Cloth? Do you first put it into film festivals, or how, how will that be coming out? Yeah, we're, we're trying to, to do the festival circuit as well as, you know, get good distribution and kind of see where we want it to play out. And, um, yeah, go from there. We have a few, you know, distributors we've been thinking about, and we know certain festivals we would like to, it to be at. So, you know, that's kind of where we're going with it. We, we'll see. Um, I definitely, you know, when you put things out there, you never know where it's necessarily going to go. But, you know, you have high hopes and visions. But I really love this one, and it's the same with WADA. They're honestly my, you know, you know when you make a film, they're, like, so close to you. They're basically like your, you know, like your babies. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. So it's interesting. Yeah. You release them to the world, but you're also, you know, you're kind of, you hold them so close to you. So you never know where it's going to go, but we can only wish the best. Yeah. I I I know not to ask you which one's your favorite because that's like asking (laughs) a parent on their their children. So um, which, but but I will ask it this way. (laughs) Having said that, I will pivot to this. So you are a producer, a writer, and an actor um, in in your films. What which of those roles 
is the real heart of you? Which one, if we had to take two of them away, which one would you say, no, no, this is, this is the part I really want? Oh, I, that's such a hard one. Um, I think it's writing and producing. If I had to only choose one, um, then I think it would be producing because, you know, I'm the person who brings all the teams together, everyone who finds the money and who, you know, thinks about distribution and writing and casting. Like I'm the person who brought everyone together to make this really clear story um, and vision to really make it come to life. But, you know, it's so hard to think they all go together, right? Like if you do anything micro-budget, and, you know, you're working with SAG or you're working with a team of people, you know, there's so many ins and outs and, you know, they all go hand in hand. They they actually do. And I know that's probably a completely unfair question because it's, it's hard, uh, hard to, hard to dissect yourself. Um, I do know that is, um, it is interesting and, and I'll ask you this way. Um, you know, what, what, do you feel when your material gets put in the hands of somebody else to be interpreted and all of a sudden you're seeing your material through their lens instead of just your own? Yeah, I think that that's part of it, right? When you're in a, you're making a film, you have to, there's so many people who play a part of it, especially your editor, right? Like your editor and your, your DP and your camera and your grips, like it all, comes to life in a different way. So it's always, you have to be malleable with all of that. So I know when I see my editor at the end of the day and we're fighting about decisions to be made, like I know a specific vision I want to see, but at the end of the day, you know, we can only work with so much, right? You have certain footage, you have certain, um, you know, you only have so much, right? You can't go and be like, oh, I want to zoom in in this moment and, you know, do all these crazy things. It's like, well, you didn't, you didn't get that shot, right? So it's like, um, right. I think it's, it's really about everyone going hand in hand and, and knowing that your vision is going to change and then trying to, at the end, make it have the vision. And I, I guess the, the spine or the story of what you really want to say and have that come across. Because if you don't have that come across, then it's like, well, then you failed, right? It's like then you didn't really make something that you wanted to do. Um, so as long as you feel kind of happy with it, and, and I, I do with both of these films, um, I'm really happy with the way they both turned out. It's um, – you know, then, then I'm happy. So I I couldn't be happier to know that, you know, Guadalajara is an Amazon Prime and that my next feature is, you know, going to be distributed as well and, you know, hopefully hit the festival circuit and do really well. So as long as I feel happy with the product, I I mean, I would love to be like, oh, everyone else, you know, their opinion matters, but it doesn't, you know. It's like I feel happy yeah. with what I made and there's always going to be people who won't like it or, you know, people will say something yeah, about you, it, especially when it's so commercial like this film. Yeah, you you have to be that way. You have to do that. You have to be the the forefronter of your vision. As, as soon as you start letting other people dictate that, then it, it, it falls apart. You know, good, bad, or indifferent, it falls apart. It, you know, it's, it's hard to to put the the strength behind someone else's vision that you are trying to just implement. So... Yeah, yeah, totally, totally relate to that. Um, one thing that stood out for me in um, Guadalajara was the cinematography, which um, I really felt like you captured East L.A. as almost another character in that story. How did you approach cinematography for, for that film? Yeah, so we were really, really lucky. Um, I I found Jessica Gallant many years ago. She's 
you know, mid-60s, a very, um, a very experienced L.A. film school graduate from the 90s, right, or even 80s, like a very experienced DP. And when we, when we went into filming this, we wanted it to be almost like a, a documentary because it did start as a documentary. And so she used really specific Voigtlandier lenses and anamorphic lenses when filming this, we wanted it to feel bigger than life, but that you were like in, like, it's like almost like you were watching it from like a, like a video camera, right? Like you feel it's like a documentary when you watch it. And so that was the vibe that we were going for um, when filming it. It, it. Yeah. It, I thought that was, was, um, there were, there were really, again, poignant uh, aspects of that where like to me it, it, and you know, I've, come from LA so I, I know the turf somewhat um, but it, it just there was some starkness and just some really specific images that you know this was not somewhere else it's like this was a, an East LA story um, and that that worked into the fabric extremely well um, I don't want to give away uh, plot plot nuances because I, I want people to to experience that on their own, but what what uh, what do you hope people walk away from Guadalajara feeling? What what either message or emotionally? What what do you want them to experience in terms of impact? Yeah, as far as impact, I want people to really you know recognize the mother daughter relationship and to see you know trans stories and identities clearly told. Um, and that was something when talking to, you know, the person who was inspired by, we, we wanted this message to be clearly told about a mother-daughter relationship. So at the end of the day, this is a mother-daughter film, kind of like, you know, how Lady Bird is, you know, her relationship with her mom. This is a, mm-hmm. you know, a tale of, you know, her mother. And, it's, and there's so much that goes on, but, you know, it's, it's about identity and it's about acceptance and it's about, you know, someone who is um, throughout all the struggle and hardships in your life, you can still find acceptance and love for each other. So it's, it's fully a, a parent relationship. It's about two, it's a mother-daughter relationship. So yeah, no, absolutely. And <laughs> go, you know, go ahead. So, you know, to feel that mother-daughter relationship and to have an understanding of identity and to know that, you know, being, it's so specific in, you know, East LA and, it's, it's very East L.A. Chicano, right? Like you see this film and we speak in Spanglish half the time and there's so much um, nuanced Chicano language in it. So I want people to kind of understand the culture and the identity of this person and her relationship with her mom. Yeah, it's one of the things I wanted to point out, and this is a plot point, but I'll point it out because it's at the very beginning of the film, so I don't think I'm giving too much away but the very beginning is with the mom and you don't know anything about her you don't know that she's a sex worker you don't know you know that she's um having conflict with her daughter and you know um you know her her trans daughter um or that her daughter being trans is an issue um you get this but you take her through a shower which is kind of you know very you know cleansing and you know almost wholesome and she comes and she prays and it's you know it's like just this warm moment between her and god and 
you know, it, it opens it up like that. And then, boom, you find out this whole other picture of her life that you don't anticipate from the, the very opening um, introduction to her. Um, what was your thought process in putting that together? Yeah, so we wanted to show that, you know, sex workers and impoverished people, like, you know, there's still a spirituality in half of, like, you know, Chicano culture, right? Like, we are all kind of Catholic. We all grew up in a certain way. I mean, I didn't grow up Catholic, but, you know, most Chicanos, like, in the culture, like, are, you know, believe in, in a Catholicism. And, you know, we all, I guess, in the culture, specifically for these, you know, this mother-daughter, they, they are that. They're very spiritual. So throughout the film, we wanted to, you know, pay, you know, homage to that and show that, you know, you can be all, you can have all these different, you know, lives, whether they be something that you live day by day with, you know, sex work or whatever, but it's like that you're still going to be praying in the middle of the night, right? Like you're still going to go to your rosary and, you know, do your Hail Mary and do all of the stuff. So it's like, you know, there's, that is a part of the culture. And I think that we had to, you know, show those, the other side of that because it, it wouldn't be true any other way. Right. So I know the path for Guadalajara was actually several for several years in the making. Um, take us through what the process was of, you know, when you decided not to do it as a documentary, but, you know, uh, it was going to be scripted. Uh, how long did that take? What was the casting process like? Um, how hard did you have to bleed to um, get this to come into fruition? Yeah, so, you know, there was a lot of um, back and forth. So it started as a documentary. I was just an assistant on the documentary. Um, my boss in Austin was a documentarian and invited me on to basically just assist. And then, you know, that was in 2012. So that was like many, many years ago. And then we didn't end up getting permission. I didn't make it into a narrative until 2016. And it was in the making, you know, we were starting to write it in 2015, but we didn't get approval to really do it from her or her mom until um, 2016. So that's when we ended up filming. And we filmed from 2016, most of it in 2016, and then we had reshoots all the way in 2017 and in 2018. It was, um, we did the festival circuit in 2018, and then um, we did ASM, the American Film Market, and um, found a distributor that basically um, didn't really do anything for us. And then um, from there, we ended up, you know, breaking ties and then put, releasing it now. This late. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's been many years, and I guess... Uh, it's been a journey for this film, but it, it, we've gone through a lot with casting and with, um, you know, just seeing where it would go. And we did a lot. We did the festival circuit, and we got a lot, a lot of praise. It was kind of good in Mexico. We, we got a bunch of um, good reviews, and we got into a lot of festivals in Mexico, which was exciting because I felt like, you know, the culture, um, they really understood where it was because it is, it is a Mexican film, right? And you see it, it's an homage to Mexican cinema. So when you watch it, it it's, it's the whole score is mariachi, basically. So Jorge Zoteco, who's like an amazing um, composer, he did the entire thing with the full orchestra and all of mariachi. And so when you watch it, you feel that, right? Like you can definitely feel like, wow, this is led in a really specific tone. And he, you know, grew up in Chile and in Mexico, so he really understood um, what it was. Yeah, and, that's, yeah, that's awesome. <laughs> Now, did you, were you um, in attendance in a lot of the festivals personally? And, and if so, what was that like? 
Yeah, I we we did attend a few of the festivals. I I, I did attend, and you know my other actors did as well. But it, it was great. We, you know, we'd show up. We would do the festival circuit, and a lot of people, you know, you know, there's there's a lot of backlash. You know, some people don't like the way that um, he's perceived in it, and some people, you know, it it does. There's so much violence and heartache in it. But we wanted to tell a true mm-hmm. story and. You know, I, I had the blessing from, you know, who this person was inspired by and to, to tell this specific story. Um, so, yeah, that's really kind of what it was, what it was about. Yeah, I, um, I can see that, that, that it's not, it isn't a two-dimensional, you know, pro-trans people commercial. I mean, it is really a character study of an individual and, um, uh all the colors of her personality, which is, you know, are, are specific to her. Um, but I can see people wanting it to be, you know, just like a, a bandage, you know, yay trans type of, of um, thing. Yeah, I feel like um, most of the stories that you hear, like, yeah, you know, trans stories are very, you know, person comes out and then they have a really, you know, solid wrapped up ending, you know. So it's like this really happy tale ending, you know, happy ending and fairy tale sort of aspect, and this isn't that story. So <laughs> it, it, it had its controversy so, for sure. I know themes of being camp and queerness and being extra and all that are really part of your creative fabric. How much, and pardon the expression, but how much of those are in Children of the Cloth, or do you depart from from that aspect um, in the making of your next film? Yeah, so in the next film, I had a lot of help with Matthew Bright, and this one is, is you know, is very, it's, it's not as camp. I would say there's still elements of it for sure, and it's a coming of age, and so there are elements there, but it's not nearly as heightened as Guadalajara was. Um, it is a little bit more subdued, but it still has those comical elements and that exaggerate, you know, that exaggeration and, you know, it it still touches on it, but it's not as heavy. With Children of the Cloth, um, Matthew Bright and I, you know, when, when talking about it, we were really trying to give a really solid thriller. And he's, you know, my mentor, so he would tell me, you know, let's refine this, let's do this. And it, 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 he taught me a lot with this one. So this next one is, um, it's a standard thriller. And it is inspired, again, by true events. I think that's kind of my, my style in filmmaking is to, you know, make films that I have a close connection to if I know personally know them, um, then I probably right. won't do it. So um, all the films I do are usually about, are, are based on truth, or at least inspired That's, by truth. It's super exciting hearing your process and how you, you know, creatively approach it and the the colors that, that, that you fold into it. Um, what stories going on around now outside of you um, – um, are speaking to you that you think you might be inspired for future projects? Oh, that's that's a great question. Um, so right now I'm also working on two other series. I'm um, I'm helping produce the series called The Game, which is about Dungeons and Dragons and Chosen Family. Um, and so that was an, is an interesting pilot, as well as um, I'm doing a coming of age um, story, 30 minute sitcom um, about this well off Latino girl and San Marino. So I have two different series that I'm working on now with two different um, teams. And, and, you know, I only write about things I know. So it's really interesting to be like, okay, I'm using the gamer aspect 
and then I'm using this, um, I'm using, like, you know, growing up, you know, being around other people who were, you know, w- you know, well off or better off, um, you know, what's the right word? Um, you know, who, affluent. Yeah, I mean, I didn't grow up necessarily affluent, but I, I grew up in, you know, a cult. <laughs> um, right. <laughs> but people who are Latin and, I guess, telling other sides of Mexican-American culture, because, you know, most of the time it's always these immigrant stories, and so I want to kind of flip it on its head. And so I'm telling my friend's story, who she grew up really affluent, and her perspective. So that was something that I, you know, really want to tell in this next series. It's about um, a girl who leaves from New York from this tragic relationship. She moves back home to her parents, who have a huge furniture store that is real life. It's in real life, it is a really well-known furniture store here in L.A. It's huge. And it's about her life adjusting to this furniture store and, you know, being this affluent person and um, you, you flip it. So you see, you know, you never really see rich Mexicans or people who are like, you know, well off. And so to tell her perspective was really interesting. And I, and there are queer um, people in the story as well. So I got to kind of put my spin on that and that was really exciting. And, um, and the Dungeons and Dragons one, a lot of the characters are queer and they're gamers and I'm a gamer. So it's like, you know, to be able to, to do all of that, it's, it's really exciting to be like, okay, I get to really put in everything I do know in it. But, um, yeah, I'm super lucky to have a great team and be surrounded by people who, you know, bring me in and, you know, see my, see my work and, you know, get to help me, you know, along the way to make this project come to life, these projects, actually. Oh, yeah. yeah, I'm excited to see that from you uh, on two aspects. One, I don't think enough you know, my sons are gamers, and um, I don't think gamers and almost that part of our culture has really been told well in movies so far. I mean, yeah. it's it's sort of, you know, they're movies that are sort of extensions of gaming, but they're not really about gamers per se, which I think is a great unexplored territory. Um, but also, I'm really kind of excited to see you do full-out comedy, um, because let's face it, Guadalajara is, um, you know, there, there might be moments that, that, you know, edge towards humorous because it's camp, but, um, yeah, it's, it's uh, pretty moving. Um, but I definitely could see your, your hand in, in making something just out and out comedic. Um, what what do you see as a challenge in that area? Yeah, as far as comedy, I mean, it, you know, it's so subjective, right? I think what we think is comedy is, I mean, I grew up so conservative. So for me, I have such a dark humor and I, it's kind of dry. And so, you know, I, like I will, you know, reference like gay experiences or things that are so nuanced or, you know, not being out and trying to, you know, just show all of the things of, you know, the awkwardness that exists in, you know, being gay and, you know, having to also fight, like, a conservative family or, like, those elements all kind of come in into, into it. And it's, I think it's really funny when you end up, you know, seeing all these things and in these next projects. Um, so, yeah, I think it's um, just hearing and seeing all of that and how you, like, you know, cope with all of it. It's, and then in the style, it's kind of not super John Waters, but it still, you know, kind of gives camp. It, um, right. It, it just, it's a different level entirely. Because I feel Wada was so, um, you know, 
kind of dark. Honestly, it was a, it was a hard film to do. It was a hard film to to be in and to and to just shoot entirely because it was so heavy. So much of it was so just heavy. Like it was very violent. It was um, emotional. Like the whole thing was very you know about identity. So of course it wasn't going to be um, you know. And then the culture itself and all of it just was very. Um, you know, we, we touch base on Chicano culture in East LA with, and it's a full impoverished story, right? Like we, like they share, you know, rooms and it's a small little place and, you know, just for the idea of trying to find work and trying to make money, it's like, it's such a struggle. And, and these next ones, it's not really like that. It's about, you know, one's about a rich, you know, the series, you know, Claire and San Marino is about a well-off girl in her family furniture store and then in the game, it's about all these groups of tabletop role-playing games and Dungeons and & Dragons and all these people coming together to, for this chosen family. Um, and, you know, all of them experiencing, you know, what it is in a fantasy world and what it is um, outside of it and all of their personal day-to-day um, struggles and, you know, whether they're queer or they're this, you kind of get all these different elements. So I think that's a different I, perspective entirely. And so, yeah, we'll see. We'll I, think, see. I think it's, yeah, it's super, super exciting stuff. I am so thrilled for you. I'm thrilled for your work and I'm really thrilled for your momentum. Keep going. And, um, you know, it's like, uh, like John Walter Waters, I think you're going to, I don't know why we'll keep on calling him Walters. John Waters, uh, <laughs> you know, I think you're going to have a huge, huge mark. We are unfortunately out of time today. Um, I want to thank you for being you. I want to thank you for overcoming uh, your past. I mean, that is a, is, a, is a rough road to get out of. And um, I love that you're finding your voice, you know, as a hero over, over that and the message you're sending to other people, um, you know, as a result of that. So, you know, absolute kudos to you. Exciting things, folks. Check out the film. It is available on Amazon Prime. Uh, the film is called Guadalajara. Um, also, keep an eye on Alexander Justin for the future. His future film is Children of the Cloth. Um, so we'll be keeping tabs and watching for that to come out. Um, I want to thank Brody for his work on the show and for his big work as editor of the Los Angeles Blade magazine. Again, you can find that at losangelesblade.com. Um, and Alexandra Justin, thank you for spending time with me today. Very, very Thanks. appreciated. Um, and uh, for our listeners, we will be talking to you again next week. We have an exciting show for you. Um, I have absolutely no clue what it will be, but I can guarantee you excitement will be afoot. We will talk to you then. You've been listening to Rated LGBT Radio.